This is the Dirty Debrief for scene two. The Dirty Debriefs are where I read listener feedback about the previous scene, talk about the craft of making an episode, and in this case, give myself space to tell you about all the things I had to cut from the last episode. So first off, a couple corrections. When I was talking about how Baby and Lisa maybe grew up not feeling like a minority because of um, being Jewish kids in New York City, I said New York State by mistake. I said New York, New York State is an anomaly. I meant New York City. And you might be like, why didn't you just change it and edit it? Because I did actually notice that mistake the final time I listened to the episode. And I was like, I just need to publish this thing. And it's like a minor enough mistake. In the words of Elizabeth Gilbert, done is better than perfect. Okay, just fact checked that. And she says done is better than good, which is an even lower standard. Which, by the way, if you're a creative person at all, which is such a weird question because like everyone is but her book big magic is really good so that's my correction correction two is that i blamed christy for calling wayne knight's character newman over and over again but she did that because i called him newman in all of our emails she's barely even seen seinfeld which is shocking but also on a craft note through this conversation i decided i was going to share all my edits of her fashion segments before I posted them in the episode. And I think it didn't occur to me to do this before because people who do journalism or journalism adjacent work, you know, it's practice that you don't, you don't run things by your sources unless it's to fact check because you're not supposed to be influenced by your sources. You're supposed to be in service of the greater public good as it were. But obviously so much media right now and so many podcasts like mine are not journalism. So why would I not prioritize making sure the people that I record in my podcasts feel accurately represented? It's a really interesting discussion around what are the ethical boundaries in terms of how much access you give to your subjects in the final product um, that I think is not talked about openly quite enough. One of my friends assumed that on this professional project I'm working on that we paid our interviewees. And I was like, no way. That's really frowned upon. That would be seen as unethical, like you were compromising your sources. Um, though that didn't totally make sense for the story I was working on because it wasn't like breaking news or something. But I just know from studying media over the years that sometimes this has happened because the sources have complained and rightly so. For those of you who've ever uh, watched the Up series, which was a documentary film that began, oh, in 1964. Wow, right around Dirty Dancing time. So it started in 1964 with seven-year-old kids. So the first one was called Seven Up. And then they revisited the kids every seven years up until... 57, 56, I think was the last one. And I don't know if they're going to do another one because I think the producer passed away. Um, anyways, they're fantastic if you haven't watched them before. But I remember reading at some point, or no, I heard in an interview with the producer talking about how eventually the subjects demanded to be paid for their time. 
And I think rightly so, like they were taking a ton of time out of their lives. And particularly in the early years, the program, you know, was aired on one of the three channels or whatever. And so they, their lives were on public display and there was not anything obvious for them to gain from it. And so I, I think it made ethical sense for them to be paid. But I'm sure some people disagree with that. And then also the famous documentary Paris is Burning, which came out in 1990, which was filmed, let's see, filmed in the mid to late 80s. And it chronicles the ball culture of New York City and the African-American, Latino, gay and transgender communities involved in it. It's a pretty well-known film, like in the queer community, probably also just generally a documentary film history. And it was filmed over a number of years. And certainly the documentary filmmaker wasn't expecting to make a lot of money with it. Okay, let's see. This is according to Wikipedia. Although there had been no agreement to do so, the producers planned to distribute approximately $55,000 among 13 of the participants. And some of them wanted to sue for more money, um, but they had all signed standard releases. And the director, according to Wikipedia, has consistently downplayed the financial controversy in interviews and forums. She has expressed that documentaries are works of nonfiction and journalism, and that it has never been standard practice to pay their subjects. She states that she paid the principals as a matter of respect at a time when this was not commonly done. So yeah, I wasn't planning on talking about any of that because it doesn't directly relate to my podcast. I'm certainly not going to pay any of my interviewees because um, I'm sure as hell not making any money. Not that that always needs to be the bar. But yeah, as I claim the Dirty Debrief is partly a craft podcast, that is something I just want to flag for those of you who are interested in getting into documentary work as something that you should think about a little bit. Speaking of craft, I think a saying that all writers have heard before is kill your darlings or kill your babies, I think is meant to convey that you need to be able to let go of parts of your writing that don't serve the overall story you're trying to tell, which is good writing advice itself. But the actual phrase kill your darlings, I hate because... Well, number one, it's so unnecessarily violent. It reminds me of Kill Two Birds with One Stone, which the internet gave me an alternative, which is Feed Two Birds with One Scone. You're welcome. But also, I think sometimes the Kill Your Darlings advice can feel a bit gendered in that it's saying that if you're emotionally attached to something, then it's not objectively good, whatever that means. And so it's a piece of writing advice I think we should stop giving and just say what you actually mean. Um, but the reason I thought about this is because I was talking about that with my friend Anna, Anna who does the theme music for Butt Out Baby, and she was like, wow, like not only do you not kill your darlings, but you like create a separate episode for all of your favorite parts that you couldn't 
keep in the podcast that is already all your favorite parts. So yeah, this is the Dirty Debrief where I take all my little darlings and I put them in bed and I tuck them in and I give every single one a little pat on the head and give them all the attention they crave. I want you to know that I am capable of editing myself somewhat. So I have restricted myself to three stories from my research on Jim Crow and the civil rights era that I want to share with you. One is a story about Ida B. Wells when she was young. Another is a story about school segregation before Brown v. Board of Education happened. And then the third is going through the whole Montgomery bust boycott. So Ida B. Wells, Ida B. Wells, I knew that she had something to do with civil rights era. That is all I knew. Um, she's maybe most famous for being one of the founders of the NAACP uh, and also doing investigative journalism on lynching. But this story is before all of that. It's about her young adulthood in Tennessee and how her work commute lands her right in the thicket of Southern racial class and gender hierarchies that are shifting. So what's interesting about this era in the late 1800s is in the 12 years of Reconstruction after the Civil War, there is some progress around civil rights with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and the 1875 Civil Rights Act. There are around 2,000 men, Black men, who are elected or appointed to public office. There are, there's a Freeman's Bureau who um, supports the formerly enslaved. Though there's a quote about this time that gets shared a lot by W.E.B. Du Bois. The slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again toward slavery. And that is referring to how this era was only 12 years before then we head right into Jim Crow, which is a backlash, essentially. Ida B. Wells is kind of in, well, young Ida B. Wells is like in the thicket of this era where there's a little bit of a sense that there's going to be rights, potentially for Black people, mixed with the fact that trains were new as a way to travel. And because they were new, there weren't ingrained ideas of how these social spaces should be handled. And so it was a bit of a mess. So basically what was landed on is like, okay, we will have two types of passenger cars, a smoking car and a ladies car. And the smoking car will be for the lower classes and the ladies car for the middle class ladies and the upper class men accompanying them. Lower class white women, are probably going to end up in the smoking car because they're not considered ladies. But essentially in the early years, little attention was paid to the racial composition of the passengers in the smoking car. This I learned through Kenneth Mack, who wrote possibly his PhD dissertation on IDB Wells and the Tennessee trains. I looked him up and he's now a law professor at Harvard, so possibly he's not particularly known for this paper that I read. But thank you, Kenneth Mack. What's happening, though, is now in Memphis, there's an emerging Black middle class, including people like Ida B. Wells, who felt like she should have access to the ladies' car because she was higher class, um, which does mean 
she in some ways bought into a class hierarchy, but as my friend Ariana says, we all live in the soup. Wells's commute went from Memphis to a nearby town where she taught during the week. And what she always did is she bought a first class ticket and then rode in the ladies' car. And it wasn't unusual per se for black women to be in the ladies' car as long as they were or appeared to be nursemaids of white women that they were accompanying. Here's what Kenneth Max said about this. He is like, the black nurse had a non-threatening, almost asexual aura of a mammy that didn't disturb notions of ladylike chastity or gender and class hierarchies. So on September 5th, 1888, Ida B. Wells is told to move to the smoking car. She refuses because she's like, I bought a first class ticket. Conductor tries to drag her out. Ida bites his hand. Then the conductor recruits two men to help him remove her. She's 21 at the time and five feet tall, but she still refuses and just leaves the train. There was a white passenger who witnessed this event and he's like, I just assumed she was a nurse and no one would have objected to her presence if she just conducted herself in a proper manner. Just want you to know that this man's name was Virginius. Anyways, Ida B. Wells being the like unusually courageous person that she was, she kept on riding in the lady's car until a year later when she was ejected again. But this time she sued um, and she initially won in the lower courts, but then it was overturned by the Supreme Court. And if you're like me and like, why the hell did I not hear about this? This was decades before Rosa Parks. And it's probably because she lost. Uh, she didn't have a huge movement behind her. Also, I just want to say one more thing about this time period that was so odd. So because Black people, mostly Black men, had a little bit of political power, there were these laws that were passed in 1881 and 1882 in the Tennessee legislature that I've heard be referred to as the first Jim Crow laws. And I guess that's technically accurate because it was a law mandating the separation of races on the trains in Tennessee. But what they actually were about was, on the one hand, they're like, yeah, you shouldn't charge black passengers first class fares, but then make them go into second class, which is what happened to Wells. So obviously there was some real noncompliance there. But they weren't like, this is racist. They were like, the problem with this is, is just charging people too much money. So what you need to do is create separate portions of cars for first class black passengers. So it's like classy segregation. And the reason there was any sort of attempt to address some version of this inju injustice is because this was this little, uh, I almost said golden era, that's not, that's a big overstatement, but the 12 years of reconstruction where black men had some political power and um, there were four black legislators uh, in Tennessee. This law, which is now understood to be the first Jim Crow law, um, was actually like milder than it could have been because they were trying to placate them a little bit. So it's a lot more complicated than just being like, this was the first Jim Crow law. And also just like, oh, so classic humans, like being like, oh, I know the solution is like having like 16 million different like portions of a train car instead of being like, why don't we like think about maybe how it wouldn't be so bad if everyone just sat together. 
Hi there, it's Ellie from the future. Do you have one of those Jiminy Cricket friends whose voice sometimes bops around in your head like a conscience? Well, when it comes to social justice issues, my Jiminy Cricket is my friend Juliana. And I knew, I knew I was being sloppy about this conclusion. And I could just imagine Juliana's disapproval. But I pulled a done is better than perfect and didn't want to put in the effort to revise it, even though unlike the New York State screw-up, this was definitely worthy of taking the time to correct. However, when Juliana predictably called me out for this, I asked her if she would record a response, and she did, and this is more insightful than anything I would have said. So maybe it worked out. You use the phrase classic humans. And I was just like, no, because it's actually legislators, I think, making deliberate decisions in the way that white moderates do per Martin Luther King Jr.'s definition, where they're choosing deliberately to be more devoted to order than to justice. They choose to maintain existing systems of power actively. And part of sort of that definition, classic humans, or like deploying that definition of human nature, deliberately closes possibility. Erica Miners, who's an abolition, a prison abolitionist, says that liberation is unthinkable by design. So these systems deploy language like this, deploy ideas about who we are as humans in order to limit us. And we know that that's not true. Like these are literally stories that you're sharing, like Ida B. Wells actively resisting these systems of power. Like Daniel Heath Justice calls us to do imagining otherwise. You call her unusually courageous, but isn't courage also part of what classic humans are? It's not the only thing we can be to be the white moderate, to, to uphold these existing systems of power. That's not all that we are. Um, and it's literally those systems of power. It's capitalism. It's, it's white supremacy that tells us that's who we can be. Please let me tell you about two people who hailed from Farmville. That would be Farmville, Virginia, not Farmville the... Was that a Facebook game? Always looked so boring, but probably it was very soothing to play. And also, I can't talk about boring things because I like listen to recaps of things I've already seen all the time. Craft note, do you know what you're not supposed to do before you record is drink dairy. For me, that means no tea with milk, but I'm doing that anyways right now because I feel like it. That is my tip for you that you should avoid. Okay, this next story came from Parting the Waters, America in the King Years, 1954 to 1963 by Taylor Branch, the Pulitzer Prize winning book. Vernon Johns. Is that a name you know? I did not know it. 
He was the pastor at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, before Martin Luther King Jr. took up the post. So he was a very controversial dude. And similar to Ida B. Wells, I've read people talk about him being before his time because he was extremely outspoken and did not seem to be intimidated by the status quo. According to Taylor Branch, Dexter Baptist Church was the more affluent church, proud church. So he got into clashes with the congregation on a number of things. They didn't want any music in the church. He was really into spirituals. He liked to sell fruit out of the back of his truck after services. They found that very embarrassing for their pastor to be doing that. He put a big bulletin board out front of the church that would like announce the topics of his sermons. And in 1949, he posted that he would preach the following Sunday on the topic, quote, segregation after death. And I guess this is one of these things that like both religious white and black folks just wanted to quietly assume that heaven would be segregated. And so it was extremely taboo that he was just announcing around town that he was going to call this into question. He also like waltzed into white restaurants and ordered sandwiches, fought with bus conductors about moving seats. He even called out hypocrisy within his own community. There was a prominent doctor who murdered his wife on his porch because he suspected her of cheating, but he was a powerful man, so no one really tried to invoke any kind of justice. But when he came into church, Vernon John stood up and was like, there's a murderer in the house and just completely called him out. Eventually, in 1953, he was forced to resign. And the real reason, though, I actually wanted to tell you about him is because I want to talk about his niece, Barbara Johns. We're back in Farmville, Virginia. It's 1951 at R.R. Moton High School. The school principal gets a call that the police are about to arrest two of his students down at the bus station. So he takes off to take care of that. After he leaves, all of the classrooms get these notes from the principal saying that there is a general assembly. So all 450 students, 25 teachers, fell into this auditorium. And then the stage curtain opens. And it's not the principal, but a 16-year-old junior named Barbara Johns. And she's like, listen, this is a meeting for the students. Teachers, you should leave. And the teachers are like, what the heck is going on? So a few of them like tried to get to the stage to get at her. But Barbara Johns took off her shoe and wrapped it on the school bench and said, I want you all out of here. And then a small group of her supporters sort of like ushered the teachers out. When they left, she was like, listen, we have to do something about the conditions at our schools. For years, the overflow students have had to sit in these tar paper shacks where they have, they're have they so cold in the winter that they have to wear their coats. And the history teacher has to double as the bus driver who also has to gather the wood to start fires in the shacks. And she's like, the adults aren't doing anything about this, so we need to go on a strike. And all of the students march out of the building behind her. Also, Barbara Johns and her crew sent letters to NAACP lawyers who assumed the people that wrote them were adults, and they agreed to come to Farmville. So the lawyers come. There's a thousand black folks from Farmville there. Lawyers are like, listen, this is this battle you're calling for is dangerous. The strike would be illegal. And then all the students are like, whatever. There's so many of us, we wouldn't fit in the jails anyways. 
And then the lawyers are like, we can't actually sue for better Negro schools, only for completely integrated ones. And the kids were like, whoa, because I hadn't even thought of that. But they were into it. And then finally, a few days later, the rest of the town got into the spirit. The NAACP lawyers filed a suit May 23rd, 1951, one month after the students had walked out of school. And then it was consolidated with four similar suits as part of the historic Brown v. Board of Education. Taylor Branch is like, if this strike had begun 10 or 15 years later, everyone would have known about Barbara Johns because she would have been in the media. But also he writes that the idea that non-adults of any race might play a leading role in political events had simply failed to register on anyone, except perhaps the Klansmen who burned a cross in the John's yard. So Vernon John's brother, Barbara's dad, sends Vernon a telegram being like, I need you, like it's getting heated here, I need you to come and take my daughter back to Montgomery. And Taylor Branch writes, Barbara Johns changed from student leader to student exile the very next morning as her parents piled her into Uncle Vernon's green Buick with the cheese and the milk and a very large watermelon. It embarrassed her that her legendary uncle stopped on the side of the road to eat the watermelon like the stereotypical Negro, and her resentment grew as he failed to say anything or ask a single question about her astonishing achievement. Okay, I want a movie about this road trip. I think it's about like a 10 hour drive. I want to know about this relationship. I want to know more about Barbara and how she's taking this all in, how she's dealing with his silence. So if there's any writers out there that are a better fit than me to write a story like this, please run with this idea. And uh, if you want a co-writer, maybe you know where to find me. arrived finally at the Montgomery bus boycott. This is Rosa Parks, people. And unless otherwise noted, all of this information I also got from Taylor Branch's book. Some context. Montgomery was heavily dependent on these two Air Force bases that really revived the city and led to Montgomery feeling superior to the steel town of Birmingham and a cotton town like Selma. But it was a sore spot because the source of this superiority was a Yankee government that was now imposing integration in the military. So as a result, the city council was really concerned about the integration spreading into the city itself. So one of their tactics was to have really severe segregation rules on the buses. And there is this group of professional Black women in Montgomery called the Women's Political Council, many who would later go on to be members of MLK's church. And as early as May of 1954, they wrote the mayor asking for a couple things. One, a city law that would make it possible for Negroes to sit from back toward front and whites from front toward back until all the seats are taken. It's notable that they're not even asking for integration here. Instead, what they're commenting on is the Montgomery bus practice of imposing a floating line between the races as determined by the white bus driver. The other thing they asked for, that Negroes not be asked or forced to pay fare at the front and go to the rear of the bus to enter. 
Right. So black patrons weren't allowed to even walk through the white section. And sometimes bus drivers would just drive away before waiting for black passengers to re-enter from the back. The letter ends by being like, you know, there's been talk about citywide boycott if these conditions don't improve. And we would really like to avoid such measures. That letter was sent a year and a half before Rosa Parks. Before we get to her, we have to talk about Claudette Colvin. On March 2nd, 1955, a white rider entered a bus that had a full white section. And so the white driver did what was often done, which was order black patrons in the middle section to move. There were four black women in the row he told to move. Two moved right away and two pretended not to hear him. The driver flagged down a police footman who then hailed a squad car. And then this is interesting. Taylor Branch writes, Soon the policemen began pressuring some of the black men to give up their seats to the holdout women. Seeking the point of least resistance, they tried to turn a segregation dispute into a question of chivalry. Wow, that is very sneaky to be like, oh, you know, the issue here is not actually racism. It's really about black men not taking care of your women. Anyone, one man did comply, but no one would move for Claudette who Branch describes as a feisty high school student, who, quote, defended her right to the seat in language that brought words of disapproval from passengers of both races. Apparently one white woman did defend her, which, God, it's nice to read a white woman in this history doing the right thing. Once in a blue moon, Colvin was dragged off and arrested. Now, there was debate within the Black community about whether Colvin's arrest should be the incident they used to try and finally overturn the horrendous bus laws. And members of the Women's Political Council, they canvassed around for witnesses of the incident, and it was very discouraging. Most of them were just scared, and it seemed like at any moment they would maybe deny what they said. Claudette herself would not recant, but, quote... She was immature, prone to breakdowns and outbursts of profanity. Worse, she was pregnant. I'm usually pretty good about not buying junk food at the grocery store because I cannot hold back when the junk food is in my house. But I impulsively bought a box of tea biscuits, which are essentially cookies. And if I wasn't going to edit this episode, you would just hear these long breaks in between stories where I'm like munching. I think I might have to throw these biscuits in the trash or I'm just going to eat all of them and feel physically unwell. Anyways, then some months later, a white woman boards a bus and asks a driver to make a black woman named Mary Louise Smith move. Mary refuses, or is arrested and convicted. Now there's a new fever pitch again about whether this would be the case to pursue until it was decided that no, Mary Louise Smith was Quote, no better suited to stand at the rallying point than was Claudette Colvin the previous spring. Her father was an alcoholic. She lived in one of those see-through clapboard shacks out in the country. Yeah, they were trying to find the perfect victim. I threw out the tea biscuits and like put them deep into the garbage. So I didn't pull a George Costanza or a Miranda Hobbs. Okay, sorry to interrupt that very important story because you might be like, what the fuck is this? Dismissing these two women because they are poor and pregnant. But yeah, they were looking for someone they thought would be sympathetic, which did work out for them. But also, it's not like it was just Rosa Parks. There was all of this other stuff that's about to happen. 
I think a lot of feminists, when we saw Christine Blasey Ford testify against Kavanaugh, we're like, wow, thank God. She's as perfect of a victim as you could possibly get. Like educated, well-spoken, calm, middle-aged, non-threatening white woman. And yet it did not matter at all. Yeah, not to mention Kavanaugh, who's like sputtering and clearly so profoundly entitled this job that's a tremendous responsibility and not a birthright. So sometimes comporting yourself to the dominant norm is not going to work anyways. But we still love Rosa Parks. And so December of the same year, another woman is going to stand her ground. This is how um, Rosa Parks is described in Taylor Branch's book, a tireless worker and churchgoer of working class station and middle class demeanor. Rosa Parks was one of those rare people of whom everyone agreed that she gave more than she got. And just when you think that's high praise, he continues, her character represented one of the isolated blips on the graph of human nature, offsetting a dozen or so sociopaths. I am going to borrow that the next time I'm wooing somebody. Baby, you're so good. You offset a dozen or so sociopaths. Okay, when I was a kid, I learned that Rosa Parks was an old lady who was tired and didn't want to give up her seat. She was 42, by the way. And then I remember a meme that was making the rounds on lefty Facebook some years ago about how Rosa Parks was actually an NAACP trained activist and that this was a planned action. The truth of it seems to be, I guess, somewhere in the middle, like she did attend an activist workshop. She was the secretary for the local chapter of the NAACP. But this act, December 1st, 1955, was spontaneous. Or or more accurately, it began as a very typical Montgomery conflict about that damn floating line between the black and white passengers. The driver noticed a white man standing, so he ordered the row of black passengers just behind the white section to move. No one did. Then the driver stopped the bus and yelled at them. At this, three of the passengers moved, but Rosa refused. And then she was arrested, just like Claudette Colvin and Mary Louise Smith. In short order, all the black activists in Montgomery found out. And once they got her out of jail, Edie Nixon, who is a prominent black union organizer, and his white lawyer ally, Clifford Durr, and his wife, Virginia, who was also an activist, they went to Parks' house and asked if she would be willing to fight the case. And she knew that this was going to be a huge decision that would affect her family. And remember our friends over at the Women's Political Council? Well, as soon as President Joe Ann Robinson heard about Rosa Parks and the plan to appeal her case, she jumped into action and she phoned all of her closest friends on the council. Taylor Branch writes, all of them responded like firefighters to an alarm. This was it. Okay, Rosa Parks was arrested late Thursday afternoon. Nixon and Durr bailed her out and the group made the decision to go ahead with the appeal that evening. The Women's Political Council drove alone in their cars at night, a thing that was not done at that time in the South, to meet at Alabama State College at midnight, and they met under the pretext of grading exams. But instead, they wrote and rewrote and rewrote a letter of protest calling for a boycott of the buses starting on Monday. 
As they didn't have access to newspapers or radio, they knew they were going to have to reach the Montgomery Black community through their contacts at the churches, and so they needed thousands of copies of their letter. As Taylor Branch describes, the best place to get copies of such an incendiary letter printed, they realized, was precisely where they were, at Alabama State on the mimeograph machines. This would require stealth, because the college was funded largely by the Alabama legislature. If white people ever learned that state-employed teachers had used taxpayer-owned facilities to plot a revolt against segregation laws, heads would roll and budgets would surely be cut. So, the women resolved to finish the mammoth task before daylight and never to speak of what they had done. They soon lost all thought of going to bed that night. Oh my god, this is my other story pitch. I want someone to write a play about that night at Alabama State. And if you're a Black Southern writer who wants to write this and uh, approach me as a co-writer, I am flattered and interested, but I have to tell you I have a condition that part of the story would be that two of those women are in love with each other. Okay, so early Friday morning, Edie Nixon, who also did not sleep, phoned all the Black leaders of the city to organize a meeting the coming day. And then here is where Martin Luther King Jr. comes in, as he had recently accepted his very first pastorship job at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, a.k.a. where Vernon Johns was forced to resign from. Okay, by Saturday, most of uh, the Montgomery Black community had either seen the leaflets or heard from word of mouth. And a mass meeting was to happen at 7 p.m. on Monday after the first day of the boycott. On the Monday, all the leaders were up before dawn, and Coretta Scott King was keeping watch by the window for the first morning bus. She saw headlights, called her husband over, and they waited. It was empty. It almost gives me shivers. Later that morning, Rosa Parks was convicted, and her lawyer filed an appeal. And hundreds of Black protesters showed up to the courthouse, and this immediate wave of support shocked even the boycott leaders. Okay, before the Monday mass meeting, all the male leaders assembled, and eventually Martin Luther King Jr. was elected president of the new Montgomery Improvement Association, or MIA. The Monday mass meeting had an overwhelming turnout, and this is where MLK made his first public speech as a civil rights leader. As Taylor Branch finishes his description of the night, he writes, In the few short minutes of his first political address, a power of communion emerged from him that would speak inexorably to strangers who would both love and revile him, like all prophets. He was 26 and had not quite 12 years and four months to live. Okay, my impression before this of the boycott was that Rosa Parks refused to move. There was a boycott that lasted, I don't know what I thought, like a week. And then segregation was solved on the buses. Oh my gosh, it was 13 months and it could have failed so many times. For one, most of the uneducated black folks of the city were maids and day laborers and cheap bus transportation was immensely important for them. So some Black-run taxi companies tried to lower their fares, but then the police commissioner is like, we're going to arrest cab drivers that do that. And so a massive carpool system was organized. 
150 cars were lent for the carpool, and MLK did the math and realized each car would have to take on more than 130 rides per day. There's so much that happens, but for the sake of not making this even longer, I'll just touch on a couple incidents during the long 13 months. At the end of January, a black reporter named Carl Rowan saw an item in the Associated Press Wire about how the Sunday Montgomery Advisor, a newspaper, was going to break a story that the black leadership agreed to end the boycott. And Rowan had a very hard time believing the story, so he called MLK. MLK had no idea what the hell this was about, and so he flew into crisis mode attempting to find these so-called three prominent Negro ministers, which were the sources of this upcoming news story. They were able to learn all three names before midnight. You can just imagine all of these like wild phone trees. Anyways, turns out they were country preachers who had been lured into the city by the mayor who was like, I just want to discuss insurance matters with you. But then he basically made them sign a copy of the bus settlement. The city commissioners created this hoax that they were hoping either would dissolve the boycott or divide the Black community. The leadership phoned every single Black minister in Montgomery and was like, in church tomorrow, you have to denounce the article as fake. And so they managed to pull it off. At this point, they felt like they needed a new strategy and a federal lawsuit. Rosa Parks' lawyer, a man named Fred Gray, had, as Taylor Branch puts it, knowing that white Alabama would react to such a step as the social equivalent of atomic warfare, had been quietly seeking advice on the possibility since the first week of the boycott. Okay, a few days later, MLK is arrested for speeding five miles above the speed limit. This was a very common tactic of the city to repress the efforts of the carpool. Remember our pal Joanne Robinson at the Women's Council? She was known for being super meticulous in all aspects of her life, including driving. And during the boycott, she would be fined 17 tickets, either for going too fast or too slow. Then in February, a Montgomery judge prepares indictments against the boycott leaders, which means the city is like, here's your ultimatum, agree to our settlement that you previously rejected or face the law. And so they have this tense meeting where they're all like, what do we do if all the carpool drivers go to jail? And then an activist preacher named S.S. Say spoke up and was like, I say, let's all go to jail. And this idea set fire to the room. And at the mass meeting later that day, only two people voted to end the boycott. And then when the indictments were finally announced, Edie Nixon, at the suggestion of activist Bayard Rustin, who was here, if you know who he was, but sort of behind the scenes because he's a communist and an outsider. And that is not what uh, Southerners like, as we learned in the last episode. Oh, he's also queer too, right? Anyways, so he is in the background and he was like... Nixon, E.D. Nixon, you need, that's probably not what he called him, you should not wait it out until they arrest you. You should proudly announce yourself at the courthouse. And then people started hearing that this was going to happen. And so a crowd surrounded the courthouse and the mood became almost festive. Branch writes, Sheriff Butler, exasperated by this perversion of the penal spirit, came outside to shout, 
This is no vaudeville show, but he had little effect. The jailhouse door, which for centuries had conjured up vision of fetid cells and unspeakable cruelties, was turning into a glorious passage, and the arriving criminals were being celebrated like stars at a Hollywood premiere. Okay, at MLK's trial, which opened on March 19th, 1956, finally attracted some attention to the national press. And here is where I think Jake Hausman probably would have first learned about Martin Luther King Jr. as he was profiled for the very first time in 1956 in the New York Times. On June 4th, three federal judges in a two-to-one vote struck down Montgomery's bus segregation ordinances as unconstitutional. Alabama appeals to the Supreme Court immediately. For the next several months, the city kept fighting back against the boycotters, including petitioning a state court to serve an injunction to the carpool system. And it was November 13th, while King was in court for this matter, that he was handed the bulletin announcing that the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed the lower court's judgments against the Alabama segregation law. So in this case, change was forced by the trifecta of admirable, sympathetic victim, mass demonstrations, and legal win. I was going to debrief a bit on Vietnam, but I will save that for when it comes up again in the movie. I don't think I'm going to do debriefs for every single scene episode, but we shall see. You are still welcome to email me any respectful thoughts you have about my scene analyses. I definitely don't feel like there's only one single correct take on this stuff. I've already recorded the interviews for scene three and four, and they are great. Keep your ears and eyes open. Until next time.